This episode is brought to you by Kanye West and Neo and their inspirational quote. Now we high as the way we cruising on. High like I like Mercury. Why do we mention the solar system? Cause you in my soul and system. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, my people. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, where I welcome people with remarkable stories for amazingly vulnerable conversations. I am Stefan Dyer, former banker turned comedian and lifestyle entrepreneur, and this episode with Andrea Sampson was a masterclass, I repeat, a masterclass on public speaking, storytelling, and influencing. I am not joking when I say I got schooled. <laughs> In this episode, I always listen to the episodes once they're up so I can improve my interviewing style. But this time around, no joke, I will be taking notes. I consider myself a pretty good speaker uh, and speaking coach, but Andrea is just another level. Andrea Sampson is a TED-trained speaker coach and co-founder, CEO, and executive speaker coach at Talk Boutique. She's a former strategist and consultant and spent over 25 years working in marketing and advertising, presenting and developing strategies for Fortune 100 companies. With a natural talent for developing compelling stories and persuasive content, Andrea is sought after in assisting teams and executives develop their presentations or pitches. Now, that was like the formal bio, but I prefer what Lil Mota, Lilian Mota, our mutual amazing friend, wrote to me when uh, introducing me to Andrea as a potential guest for the podcast. And this is what she said. Stefan, I want to introduce you to Andrea. Soul sister, badass businesswoman, marketing guru, entrepreneur, and the founder, founder and owner of Talk Boutique. She's a TED-trained speaker coach and has helped hundreds of people through event curation, public speaking, and corporate team coaching. She has an amazing story of how she got to Toronto from Nova Scotia on her own and her journey navigating the male-dominated corporate marketing world. Her stories of adversity, vulnerability, and personal development will leave you with your mouth open. And on top of that, she's an amazing mother and friend. <laughs> What? Say no more. If you like this episode, share it, give us a review. Screenshot it on your IG stories and tag us at Stefan Dyer and Talk.Boutique. My friends, I will say no more. Enjoy this episode with Andrea Sampson. Like I know you will. In three, two, one. Go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast. I have here the unbreakable, the unmistakable, the highly capable, Andrea Sampson. How are you, Andrea? I am great, Stephen. Thank you so much for that incredible introduction. I love it. Thank you so much. I want to I wanna thank you for your time, and I want to send a big hug to, to Lillian, to Lil, for introducing me, uh, introducing us. And uh, she sent us a lovely email to introduce ourselves immediately when I started reading up about you, she told me about yourself as well. I was like, I need to meet this person. 
we have a lot of things in common. We have a, a deep love and appreciation for for Lil, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. For, for public speaking, for storytelling, for people finding their own voice. We, I think, uh, have a, a deep appreciation for vulnerability. You've also moved cities. I've lived in, in different places as well. You are a mother. I am a father. And uh, I'm very excited for this conversation. Uh, me as well, Stephen. Uh, I've heard so many amazing things about you from Lil and from others. And I know the work that you're doing is important and you're really helping people. So, you know, I, uh, I really appreciate the work you do in the world and thank you for doing it. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it coming from you. I forgot another thing that we have in common is that we we are associated in many ways to, to the TED brand. I have a TEDx talk that I did in Malaysia to, uh, three years ago, telling my story of how I quit the bank to pursue my professional career in comedy with my business partner and best friend, Juan Cajiao. And you are a TED spe uh, trained speaking professional. And I you've am. done a lot of TED events as well. Yes, well, I'm so I'm TED trained. I, I started off working with uh, TEDx Toronto many, many years ago. I, uh, you know, went to my very first TED event, which was a TEDx Toronto event. And I remember just being blown away by the quality of the event, the amazing speakers who came out on that. And I wanted to be involved. And I found out that all TED events, all TEDx events, volunteer. And so I was, uh, I put my hand up. And so I ended up going through a lot of, uh, a lot of different um, roles within TEDx Toronto, starting off with being a speaker coach. And truthfully, at the time, I didn't even know there was such a thing, had never heard of a speaker's coach. Um, but, you know, I was working in advertising at the time. I was a head of strategy for a very large agency and my whole job was presenting. And so, you know, I was doing research, um, understanding human behavior and then presenting the findings of that um, and then working with our creative teams to underpin all of what you see in the ad world with the deep ideas that that uh, that came out of the research that we would do. And so I thought, you know, oh. I mean, sure, I could probably be a speaker's coach. I do this every day, um, but it's a very different thing. And so I was trained. Uh, I was trained first through TEDx Toronto, but then eventually through the head speaker coach at TED Global with some work that I had done through Singularity University out of Silicon Valley. Um, and then went on to um, not only be a speaker coach at TEDx Toronto, I went on to be the chair of the event um, and then eventually to get my own TED license. And uh, in 2020, actually hosted TEDx Corktown myself um, as, uh, as a license holder. So lots of, lots of background in TED for sure. I love it. You see, I feel like a lot of people, now that we're talking about TED, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of my friends want to do a TEDx talk or a TED talk. And for the people listening to us, the difference, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my research when I was going to do my TEDx talk is that the TEDx are independently organized and the speakers don't get paid. So, well, at least we didn't get paid. We had to pay for everything when we went to Malaysia. But yeah. the TED, the TED without the little X, the TED ones, there is the speaker's 
are getting pain or are they not getting pain or they some are, are getting pain? No. I, so my understanding, and again, I, I haven't worked with Ted global um, other than being trained by, by the head speaker coach, but what, um, so my understanding of TED, so TED is a not-for-profit organization um, aimed at, as we know, ideas worth sharing. And so TED and TEDx are directly linked and related. But the difference between them, as you've just noted, is that TEDx are independently organized um, uh, community events, and TED are the globally organized events by uh, created by TED Global. And TED has, there are really three events that they do. So the first one is the, the TED, um, TED event that happens in Vancouver, actually, yeah, in Vancouver every year. It's about a four or five day event. Um, and, uh, and, and it's very expensive to attend. All wow. of those speakers are chosen through a community nomination process um, and through private outreach. So you can nominate a speaker. There's no guarantee that they will be picked or that they'll even be contacted. But there is a community nomination process on the TED uh, website. So there's TED. Then there's TED Women that happens in Palm Springs every year, which I'm going to. Actually, I'm so excited uh, in December. Um, I've gone before and it's just a beautiful event. And you, by the way, don't have to be a woman to go. It's, it's focused on, um, on women and um, empowering women to be leaders, but what is needed is more male leadership too at these events. So TED women is open to men as well. Um, and then there's TED, um, what do they call it? I think it's called TED global or TED can't remember the exact name. It happens in Europe somewhere. Um, I don't know where it's happening this year. But again, that is meant for the international audiences. And it's very much like the TED Global event that happens in Vancouver. So it's a multi-day event. TED Women is also mm -hmm. multi-day. It's two days. And I think that the European one, I think, is three days. So those are the three TED events. Then you have TEDx, which there are over 100,000 TEDx events every year. What? I know, crazy, right? One hundred thousand. Yeah, over a hundred thousand. Um, that's what I. So that was as of last year. There may be more, there may be less. You know, with COVID, but who knows? But yeah, over a hundred thousand a year, and each one of those has has some form of a nomination process to get speakers. So as an example, TEDx Toronto, um, they're they're closing. They closed their nominations last night. Um, mm -hmm. So they're doing their event. I think it's in March or April this year. Um, usually, you know, so there's a nomination process. So getting onto a TED stage, not easy. Um, it, it sounds like it could be easy because with 100,000 events times 10 to 15 speakers <laughs> per event, you're like, wow, that's a lot. But when you consider that there's, you know, 7 billion people on the planet, not as easy, right? Yeah. Um, but the thing that I think, you know, having been both, um, you know, ha having having been a speaker's coach at TEDx Toronto and then director of programming and eventually the the chair of the event, what I can tell you is that at TEDx Toronto anyway, when we would put out a call for nomination, we would average between 700 and 1,000 nominations um, every year. And that was for anywhere between 12 to 13 spots on stage. So the likelihood of getting on that stage was, you know, it was it was tough. And believe yeah. me, like even as director of programming or the chair of the event, I couldn't say to people, oh, I'll get you on. 
There was no way. It was a committee. There was a there was a committee. There was a, a number of us mm-hmm. that were involved in making those decisions. And we made the decision based on the idea, not based on the person. And that's what it has to be, you know? I, I love it. I feel like a lot of people, and maybe we kind of did this. I think I read the Chris Anderson book, the one of the TEDx yeah, like the TED. TED founders. Yeah. yeah, I read the whole thing on the plane to Malaysia. Because I'm like, this is our one shot, you know? I think where people go wrong is that they think the talk and the way they pitch it is like an autobiography speech. And they don't really focus that, like, what you're looking for is literally the slogan, ideas worth sharing. So when preparing to apply, uh, and even once you're in, what do you recommend people, especially during the pitch, it's the idea it's yeah. hiring a copywriter to really put it in a nice way. Now, a lot of people have great ideas, but they don't know how to say them. And I think that's why uh, we do what we do. But if you could give like two tips for people looking to apply and do it and do their TED, their first TEDx talk, what would that be? So the first one is that your story is not your idea. So, and what I mean by that is that we all have stories. Look, our lives are filled with stories. In fact, our entire life is a story. And sometimes we have impactful moments in our life where we think, I need to tell this story because people will learn from it. And you're right, people will learn from it, but they won't learn your story. They will learn the idea that's hidden inside of it because stories are carriers for ideas. And so what you need to do and where you really need to spend some time, and this is tip number two, is to articulate your idea. So if you have a story that you think needs to be heard, I encourage you to take some time, sit back and think about what is it that that story is actually a carrier for. So when you're thinking of an idea, an idea is really comprised of three things. It's comprised of a what, how and a why. Now, you probably are all familiar with Simon Sinek and the start with why. And I'm going to disagree with with uh, Mr. Sinek in this moment. You actually have it right over here, too. Oh, yeah, I have it right here, too. <laughs> and why I'm going to disagree with him when it comes to an idea is that when you are creating your idea, you actually need to start with your what. Now, when you're telling your idea, absolutely start with your why come into that place but i'll get to that in a moment when you are creating your ideas when you're sitting down thinking about the story you want to share and you're pulling the idea out of it i want you to think about first what is your what the topic the topic is a very mundane thing it could be i'm going to talk to you about paper clips that could be the topic now the topic is often a noun uh, it could be uh, the resilience would be a topic Okay, so topics are just topical. There's something that you're interested in or have some expertise in. Now, the how is where your unique point of view comes in because your how is the verb. It's the way in which you activate the noun. So when you put your what, your topic, and your how together, you've got the beginnings of an idea. And in fact, for you as the speaker, the likelihood is the what and the how is what you want to speak about when you put it together and you make a little sentence out of it. And so, and for you, you're like, oh my God, that's it. And you could get really excited about the what and the how, but here's the thing. It's not about you. 
It's actually about mm-hmm. your emotions. Yes, yes. And so when you add the why, and this is where the why is so magical, because the why is the place where you, as the thinker of the idea, the speaker of the idea, and the audience, the receiver of that idea, come together. Because the why is where your passion lives. The why is the impact you want to create in the world. And the why is what the audience cares about. So when you take your what and your how, and you add the why to it, what you have is a fully formed idea that now holds not only your idea, but the interest of the audience. And when you put all of that together and you build a story around it, you have a TED Talk. Oh my God, this is a master class. <laughs> Let's go. Let's just finish the episode right now. <laughs> We're done. That's like a billion dollars in two and a half minutes. Okay. We're done. I mean, okay, guys, take care. (laughs) Oh my God. This is why Lil was talking. She was saying, and I quote, here we go. I I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to quote her right now in her email. Andrea, soul sister, badass business women, marketing guru, entrepreneur, and the founder and owner of Talk Boutique. You're living up to the hype, obviously. <laughs> big, big, uh, big hug to Lil. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I totally agree. I think that the why will bring up, I mean, everything has to have, it, the speech can be incredibly written and it can have the how, the what, and the why. And then there's the second part of it. If we break down communication, as, as we already know, the words are just a minimal part, 7%, 10%, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less of communication as a whole. And then tonality and body language comprises like the big chunk of it. And why is this key? Because I need to have my own delivery, my own style. Otherwise, anybody could deliver this speech. Totally. And I don't want it to be that way because I want people to remember, hey, this is me. I want people to be like, opening their fridge tomorrow and be like, Hey, you know, that, that Stefan Dyer guy, like, he's pretty cool. Like I love, and like Maya Angelou says, they might, they might not remember what I said or what I did, but they'll remember how I made them feel. And that's part of the, the delivery piece. I think I am really, really good at the stage presence and the delivery piece. I'm, I'm pretty good at writing and I'm pretty good at crafting and, and I'll like rehearse a lot when it comes to my comedy and my speeches. But I think the magic really, really, really comes when you're able to deliver that speech. And because you found your own style, your own voice. And the cool thing, but the horrible thing is that it takes time. My first two years in comedy were horrible. <laughs> I was, I was just, and even at public speaking, I've, I've been doing Toastmasters for, for nine years now. And, and, uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the cover of Toastmasters magazine this past February. And it's, it's a great thank you. Yeah. It's right here. Look at it. Yeah, I see and, it. I see it. And it's been, it's been wonderful. But when I look back, I'm like, you have to, you have to, fail forward in many ways. I was trying so many things at the beginning. I'm so happy I did it. When I started doing comedy in Spanish, I was a little bit more comfortable than in English. I'm from Costa Rica. And in English, when I went to see other comedians, they were just doing like one-liners. And I'm like, well, I guess that's what people do here. 
I guess I'll do one-liners. And I sucked. Like I just, it was horrible. It wasn't authentic to me. I felt awkward doing it. I always say that people are just a reflection of the speaker. If I'm awkward, they're going to feel awkward. If I'm nervous, they'll, they'll feel nervous. If I'm talking super if I'm talking super fast, they won't breathe. Yep. So if I am enjoying it, they'll, they'll enjoy it too. Sure. What do you recommend with people in finding their own voice and their own delivery on stage? Is it purely a linear, a, a linear, is it purely time or do you recommend other elements in finding your own authentic voice and delivery on stage? Yeah. So, so I want to go back. So, cause you've said a lot and I just want to just bring it back and then kind of answer that yeah. question. So, you know, when we think about um, what you're saying, the, what, the, what you're saying, that, that narrative is about 35% of what the audience receives. The other 65% is how you look and how you sound. So, so you can tell it's a right away. It's like, we spend so much time on that narrative and believe me, that's important because that's your thought leadership. That's what, that's what you believe. That is the gift you're giving to your audience. So it's important that you have that thought leadership in a way Mm -hmm. that you're comfortable. But if you show up on stage, like a mouse, (laughs) you know, so afraid to look at the audience or you speak like the newscaster and you're giving your whole talk in a monotone, your audience doesn't hear any of it, right? So that's always, you know, like you said, that's always the biggest challenge because what happens is we get, you know, we've got this well-crafted talk that we spend hours and hours and hours writing and we haven't spent any time practicing. So number one, rehearsal. That's really, really important. Say it out loud. Number Mm -hmm. one, number one thing. And, and I think that, you know, when you are writing a presentation or a talk, whether it is on a TED stage or you're doing it for a boardroom or you're doing it on a professional stage, it really doesn't matter. Write out what you want to say. Now, that I'm not saying you should script it word for word, but the writing out, first of all, helps your brain to process the information. Really, really important um, because you've got to give your brain somewhere to go. We have frameworks that we use and they're helpful, but regardless of what you use, just have the words ready. Now, stand in front of a mirror and present. And it's the most awkward thing you'll ever do. Or turn on your camera. This is something I do a lot of, is I'll turn on my camera and I'll watch myself and just get used to what your face looks like, get used to the way your hand gestures go. The first couple of times that you are in front of a camera watching yourself, it is so incredibly awkward and horrible. You're like, I can't do it, but just stay with it. Because what happens? What happens is you start to forget yourself. And you start to notice the person who you're looking at, as opposed to judging, oh, I've got that crazy hair. Because that's what happens, right? We're looking at it and like, oh, I didn't know I did that with my lip. Oh my God, my shoulder. Like we, we judge ourselves for all of these things. But after you've watched yourself for a little while, you stop seeing yourself and you start seeing this other person. And when you do that, you start to appreciate your unique style. So coming back to your question, which is how do you find your authentic self? The first thing is you have to see that authentic self. So you need to get used to 
seeing yourself. It's so important. And we all are our own worst critics. So get over yourself. Watch yourself until you're not seeing you anymore. You're seeing another person. And now appreciate who they are and what's unique about them. And you'll start to see that crazy thing you do with your lip as the thing that makes you unique because that's what the audiences are like, oh, look, she's so into it, you know? And so becoming authentic is allowing yourself to be all of who you are. You know, I, I sit here in front of you with pink hair. Um, you know, I often wear crazy glasses. I, I, you know, and it took me a long time to be okay with that because that's who I am. You know, my hairdresser likes to say that my gender expression is unicorn. So, <laughs> and, you know, but there was a time when that would have been uncomfortable for me. No, I'm just normal. I'm like everybody else. Well, actually I'm not. I'm like me and I'm okay with that. And so each of us has to become okay with that part of ourselves that we think we need to protect. And when we're okay with that part of ourselves, then when we're standing on stage, you're a rock star because that's what shows, you know, when we watch a Ted talk or we watch Steven on stage, what we're seeing is the authentic Steven. We are seeing you in your glory, in your mastery, fully present in your body. And if you were worried about a part of your body, you would only be present in that part of your body. And it would be the most awkward thing all of us could see, right? So that is how you become, how you find that authentic self. It is first, you have to find them yourself. Then just really, really appreciate all of it. Now, me as a speaker coach, when I'm working with somebody who's really, really awkward, and I work, look, I work with a lot of scientists and academics, and let me tell you, they're they're awkward. And you know what I do is I lean into it. I'm like, be awkward, be even more yes. awkward. Yes. Go do that. That's you. You know, like I love you because of that, not yeah. in spite of it. And so, you know, that's what I do with my clients. I want them to be so them, no one else could ever be them. And that is where we get the most value in the audience. You know, I remember years ago working with an academic who, oh my God, he was honestly the most awkward person. He was terrified to be on stage. He was terrified. He was doing a TED talk actually. And, um, and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get him out on stage. And so there was a team of us working with him. It was one of my very first um, um, experiences as a speaker coach. And I was working with another speaker coach at the time. And we just really spent time with this individual really like talking about how amazing his body of work was and that it needs to be seen by the world. And when he got out on the stage and started his talk, it was honestly, it was, I still think about it and get a little choked up because he got out there and the audience just immediately reacted to him. And you could see him transfer. He beamed. We couldn't get him off stage. It was his, <laughs> Miracle. We were like his talk, which was supposed to have been no longer than 18 minutes, as we know, for a TED talk, went on for 30. We had to get the audience were like they were applauding and standing. I mean, they loved him, right? But here was an individual who prior to that 
we couldn't get him in front of an audience to being in front of an audience where we had to literally have the MC go out and pull him off. So, you know, that's a I'm, lesson in authenticity, I'm, you know. Oh my God, I love it. I, I have, I've had students, uh, as you know, I have a public speaking and comedy school called Malpensando. And at the end of our workshops, they, it's a grad show of five minutes. Everybody does their first humorous five, five minutes, like their first stand-up comedy speech in front of a, a large audience. And some of them are like very shy throughout the seven weeks. And then you will have them like just become this, machine on stage and you know what i it's it has to be one of the most rewarding parts of my job my life to see these people become who they know they can become and and they deep inside them they kind of know that they can be this person but maybe they're scared of being it or 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 maybe it happens like it happened to me at the beginning i was kind of scared or shy of being as much as I could be on stage in front of my family and friends because I thought they would say like hey but you're not you're not like that all the time like who are who's that person and then I don't know where I heard it but I started to feel I think of it like a like a pie like a pie and it's not that I'm that person when I'm speaking to Andrea or my wife but it's like a thin, like 0.5% of me that gets magnified on stage. And it's not that I'm being fake or disingenuous. That is me. That is really me on stage. It's just that it doesn't come out all the time because there, I mean, I, I'm not going to talk like that at a, at a barbecue or at like a baptism, you know, but when it is time to be on stage, I just transform into this, whole different animal that I'm super proud of, of being. And the reality is, look, we are all, you know, multifaceted humans, right? Yeah. So you're not, you're not the same Steven with your, your child as you are with, you know, a business contact as you are on a stage. Of course you're not because each one of those situations requires you to show up differently. And the input that you get is different. You know, when your child needs you, you know, you feel the input of that. And so you turn Mm -hmm. into dad, right? And so, you know, as dad, you have to be responsible. You have to be loving. You've got to be, you know, there's going to be some discipline in there. And so you turn into that because that's what your child needs of you. If you're talking to a business contact, you know, you'll turn into a different person as well. You know, likely you're going to be um, a little bit, you know, a little bit less open. You're probably going to be, you know, um, sharing things, but at, at a certain point, you're not going to be sharing as much. And, you know, like, cause again, it's, it's what is required of you when you're on stage and there's a magic, as we both know, when you walk mm-hmm. out on that stage, there's an energy that you feel from that audience. And here's yeah. the thing. What's so beautiful about an audience is that everybody in that audience wants you to succeed. It's in their best interest that you succeed right? Because otherwise they're wasting their time being there. So they, they love you. They, you know, I had a, I have a friend who has this term is he, he says he likes, he, every day he gets up and he pre-likes everybody who's going to be in his day. And so the concept of pre-liking, right? So it's like, I love it. 
And that's what the audience does. They pre-like you, right? They're like, yes, Steven's coming out. And so that, that like, oh my God, they're excited. You, as you walk out on stage, that's what you get hit with, right? You get hit with yeah. that energy. And I know, you know, I'm a, I'm an introvert and it's always hard for me when I walk out on stage because that's like, wow, that's a lot of energy to take in. And I have to really, um, open myself to be able to receive it. And then, like you said, because that's what comes at you, you transform and you transform into this person that they need you to be because you are a thought leader. You're a comedian. You're an entertainer. You're, you know, you're a many things and you are ready. You're prepared for it. If you've done the work, if you've spent the time, if you understand what is expected, when you walk out on that stage, you know, you are all of those things and more. And it's mm -hmm. exciting for you as well, because it's like, I didn't know I could be that person, right? That's what happens every time. <clears throat> I love it. I love it. I feel like the part that gets my students and my clients the most, and it can, it can backfire a little bit for them, is that they get really nervous, not just in the weeks following up, but the closer it gets, they get more nervous. Yes. And what I say, because it's worked for me, is that I practice, if it's new material, at least in the beginning of my career, I used to do this a lot. If it was five minutes of stand-up, I would practice it, new, new material. I would practice it like 20 or 25 times in the two days before, at least the 48 hours prior to it. And more times, like three days before, four times before. And... I always explain to my students that the body, like my body, can't really differentiate, distinguish between the 25th time and the 26th. So I got to control as many things as I can, the, the variables that I can control, because out there, there's going to be things that I can't. What do I mean by that? I will practice in my house, in my den right here, or in the living room, like I am at the place. I will yep. get dressed up like I'm like I'm going to dress up at yeah. the show. Yeah. If I know I'm going to have a like a light in front of me, I, I put a lamp or my light ring, the same shoes, the same clothes. I walk in from the left. If I'm going to walk in from the left, I'll have a mic with me, like a fake mic or a bottle of ketchup, whatever, so that my body feels like I actually have the mic. And then if I mess up the first paragraph or the first like, like I mess up on the third paragraph, I don't go up and start it all over again. I'll finish the entire thing. Then I'll look at the page and see like, oh, where did I mess up? Because on game day, I can be like, hey guys, sorry about that. I kind of messed up here. Let me just start again. You can't do that. So if my body already finished like 25 complete shows, like 20 here in practice at my house, and the 26th time is the real one. My body is already used to that heart rate, used to the lights, used to my clothing, used to having to finish, even if I messed up a joke or a point. So I've already controlled all these variables. And then because of this great TED Talk by Amy Cuddy, How Body Language Shapes Who You Are, I think is the title. It says that, we'll put it in the show notes. It says that, you it, it, you really it's recommended for you to do power poses slash warm up in many ways before you go out to high stress scenarios environments such as professional interviews or speeches 
And I've tried it out and it works wonders for me. I'm never sitting down unless I have to, if it's a conference room, but I'm never sitting down before a show. I'm like doing power poses. I'm stretching. I'll do like push-ups. I'll go into the bathroom and like hype myself up. I'm like, I'm the best. I'm going to kill this. They're going to yeah. love me. I'm going to be called again to do another corporate event. Another, they're going to, everybody's going to add me on Instagram. They're going to want pictures. And like, after like, hyping myself up for like three minutes or five minutes i'm like like a bull waiting to come out i'm like ah, i'm not scared of these people and i've already i've already done the prep so a lot of people do the prep but they get super nervous so i say say the first couple of words just don't fumble them the first couple of words the first couple of sentences because if you've already done the prep the words are going to come out by themselves because your body is used to it and then Try to do these power poses, stretches, push-ups, whatever you can, so that you're super hyped up. Like, you're not scared of these people anymore. And because I've done the prep, because I did the warm-up, and because I'm now not scared of them, it'll go out really, really well. What do you recommend to control the nervousness? Yeah, so there's a lot of things I recommend. Um, and, and so... So I'll start off with, you know, sort of, you know, the idea of hyping yourself up, it, that works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. Like for me as an introvert, that would not work for me, right? Because as an introvert, I go in. Um, extroverts, that works really, really well, right? Because that's, you're used to it. And extroverts think out loud. Introverts think internally and come out with fully formed thoughts, right? So, so what happens is when you're on stage and when you get to that moment of, oh my God, I forgot my talk, um, th there's a completely different extrovert to introvert. And so, you know, so, so the hyping up is important, but I think there are different ways you can do it. Okay. Yes. So um, let's start off with the 24 hours. I mean, well, let's actually, let's go the week of your talk. And so to your point, the rehearsal, I love what you've said about like, yes, rehearse, like, you know what you're like, I got to say, that's an amazing process you have of like wearing the clothes and doing the light and all of it. Most people don't do that. So that's incredible. Um, and that's, and what you're really doing there is you're creating muscle memory, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's really important because our brain isn't the only place where memories are held. So when you are saying something and doing something, what happens when you do that thing, the thought comes. You're training your brain to use your body as a recall tech, a tool. You know, I worked with um, many years ago on TEDx Toronto. Actually, I worked with um, uh, one of the choreographers at National Ballet. And he was, we were doing, um, he, they were doing a performance, but he was doing a talk because he had written, he had taken um, uh, a, a very uh, classic um, uh, uh, ballet and rewritten it in a modern context. And he was helping us as the audience to understand because ballet is interpretive. And so he was helping us to understand the difference between what the classic ballet was and what he had done, which was actually all about gender expression in ballet. It was fascinating. And actually, I don't know if it's still up, but that was such a beautiful ballet. But here was the thing. He's a dancer. He's a choreographer, right? And so he has to do a talk and he was, he's, he was young at the time. Um, and so he, he had spent the time, wrote the talk, but it was very academic. And, you know, we're trying to get it in and we're working on the narrative and he just can't get it down. And I was watching him as his speaker coach. 
And I realized that he was so stiff, right? He was standing there. And I said to him, I said, dance it. And, and he said, you mean I can move? And I said, yes, you're, you're, a, you're, you're, a, you dance ballet. You're a dancer. You need to dance. Born and, to move. And so he found the, the movements that helped him to hold the words. And so they weren't necessarily ballet moves, but they were his own expression of it. And I learned so much from him in that moment because I could see that that was what was needed. So it's exactly what you were just describing. All the movements that you have as a speaker and a comedian are really holding all the words that are in your head, right? Mm -hmm. So all that work you do is, is a choreography of sorts, right? And you're choreographing your talk. So that's brilliant. Now on the, so that's the, the week of yes. And rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. People say you can over rehearse. I disagree. I think you can under, you think you've over rehearsed. That means you've under rehearsed because what's happened (laughs) go into the robotic movements, right? When I do this, I do this. And so what, like you look at a, a Ted talk, every Ted talk, People don't realize this. Most TED Talks are 100% memorized. Mm. So when, but yet we watch them, it's like, oh my God, it looks like I'm just having a conversation. That's because that person has probably rehearsed that 150 times. Yes. They have gotten it so much in their body. It just is a conversation. So rehearse. Absolutely. Now let's go to the 24 hours before that talk. In the 24 hours before your talk, You need to start thinking about what you're drinking, what you're eating, and how you're sleeping. So first of all, drink a lot of water. So when we get onto stage, when we walk out, that wall of energy that hits us, our brain goes into an amygdala meltdown. Okay, what what that means is we get flooded with adrenaline. Okay, and adrenaline is a really important hormone in our brain or neurochemical, because what it does is it puts us into a place of action. Now, sometimes that response is referred to as fight or flight, fight, flight or freeze. I like to actually talk about it more as as an action oriented um, uh, neurochemical. So our body is stimulated right away. Right. We've got all of this now. Because what happens in the brain is you are either going to go fight or run or you're going to freeze, right? We need to um, temper all of that adrenaline. If you have been drinking alcohol, lots of coffee and no water prior to your talk, you're going to get on stage and you're probably either going to freeze or you're going to forget everything because what that adrenaline floods your brain. So what you need to do is hydrate your body. So number one, hydrate your body really well, 24 hours in advance. And you want to be doing that right up to about an hour before you get on stage. Okay. And the reason I'm saying an hour before is because you don't want to get out on stage and then have to pee. So, you know, you might want to stop about an hour before just do sips after that. Um, limit your caffeine intake. We all um, like, like I'm a coffee addict. I get it. So you need to have your coffee in the morning, but don't overdo it. And don't have a coffee, coffee, at least 90 minutes before you're getting on stage. So give yourself, get rid of the caffeine because it is a diuretic. So it means that it, it dehydrates you. It also makes you jittery. And again, it'll interact with that big hit of adrenaline that you're going to get. So you want to drink lots of water, 
limit your coffee and caffeine intake and limit your alcohol intake. Alcohol, again, dehydrates you. Of course, we know it interferes with all of the systems of the body. Our body's electrical. So, you know, don't throw some alcohol in there the night before. It's just not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's number one. Now, what are you eating? How are you supporting yourself? If you've got a nervous stomach, you need to be aware of these things because it will throw you off. So make sure that you're eating regularly. You're eating um, food that you can digest easily. So stay away from things with heavy chemical laden, uh, high fat. Um, these are these are things that make us sluggish and that make it difficult. So what you eat and what you drink is important before you get on stage. Now, the idea of body language, so important. One of the first speakers that I coached um, on TEDx Toronto was uh, Mark Bowden. And Mark is one of the uh, foremost experts in the world on body language, um, akin to um, Amy Cuddy. Mark is here in Toronto. He speaks all over the world. And I remember when I started coaching Mark and I was like, my God, what can I teach you? I mean, for God's sake, you are the expert. Here was the thing. He said, yes, and I'm used to doing uh, three-day seminars. I have never done this in 18 minutes. And so, you know, he and I spent time together figuring out what was his 18-minute talk. And it's on TEDx Toronto. I highly encourage you to go watch it. But what, you know, what I learned from Mark about body language was phenomenal. And so the power pose, yes, but also be aware of what your what your body is saying to the audience when you're on stage. Mm-hmm. I won't go into it because it's it's very detailed. But watch Mark's uh, his his TED talk. You'll learn a ton. But understand the power of your body. So the power pose. Yes, do it before you get on stage. When you're standing in the wings waiting to be called, you stand there in the power pose. Have you know? Have your hands on your hips. Feel like superwoman or superman. Uh, you know, you are incredible. But here's another little one that I love to do and I think is so powerful. So imagine, okay, it's about 10 minutes before you're going to get on stage. And you're, you're backstage, you're waiting, the other speaker is going. I want you to, in that moment, clear your mind, okay? And in that moment, just close your eyes. You're backstage, you're by yourself. So close your eyes. Now, I want you to go in your mind to that moment you have just finished your talk. The audience erupts. It's a standing ovation. They are yelling your name. You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. You know that you are a superstar. You rock. You're walking off that stage and the, 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 the applause is deafening. You come backstage, everybody is high-fiving you. Oh my God, you know that was absolutely the best talk you have ever given in your entire life. And you know you're going to do this again and again because you got it. You know it. Okay, now open your eyes. And that is what I want you to go on with. That is beautiful. Because you're in the place of what you're creating. When you visualize what you want and you walk out with that in your mind, that's 
what the audience feels to your point, which I agree with you 100%. Whatever you feel is what they feel. And when you know that you are incredible, that's what they're feeling. That's what they're feeling. And so yes. you're transmitting to them. I, I kind of do that. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But when I talk to myself, when I hype myself up in yeah. the mirror... I'm, I'm saying these things I love. They're going to love me. They're going to give me a standing ovation. They're going to, ah, and I'm picturing it. I'm visualizing it. And I remember like the seconds before I, I recorded my comedy special, it was at the second city. I was behind the curtain and I was just like this, just wait, like as people were clapping when they said, <laughs> Stephen Dyer, I was like this with my arms wide open. And I was like, I was born to do this. And then I went out just like the happiest ever and just enjoying it. Cause I mean, my view is maybe this is just me, but the hard work is already done. If I practiced, I, I shouldn't be betting the house on my performance that day. To, to me, yes, I have to perform and do an, a stellar job, but I can't go run the marathon without having run a marathon or run at least many, 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 many times. Yeah. So I'm not seeing, I'm not going like, oh, let's see what happens on game day. I, no. I, I can't do that. So like, like you said, I always tell my students and clients, if you're practicing drunk, then okay, do the presentation, drunk, but you're not. So you have to practice the way that you're going to do it on game day. And yep. then you're going to feel all these things. And I love when you said there has to be words to the speech. Cause a lot of people say, no, I'm not going to write my speech. Cause I want it to be like spontaneous. Well, cool. You can still be spontaneous and know your speech. In fact, yep. I argue it's even better if oh, you know your speech so, so well that you learned it. Now you can unlearn it because you're not worried about interacting with the audience. You're not worried about having fun. You're not worried about writing on stage, going ad lib because you know it so well that you can come back anytime. And that's when people think, oh, my God, he's so spontaneous. He was improvising. Blah, blah. Well, no, like, you know, it so well that your eyes are not like, uh, what's next? What's next? People can tell these things. But here's the thing. So, you know, I think it's, a, and, and, you know, you spread up something that I think is, is really important, which is, look, we all get on stage. We've all been there in the moment where you forgot what you were going to say. It all happens. It happens to all of us. Right. Even if you were being spontaneous and somebody asked you and you're like, oh, so here. So the power of the pause is mm -hmm. so underrated, mm -hmm. right? As a speaker, when you get to those moments, you're on stage, maybe you've forgotten what you're going to say next, and you have that moment. Honestly, when you pause, that is such a relief for the audience. That's mm -hmm. a moment. There's a couple of things that happen when you pause. So first of all, if you if that moment happens for you, and this is what I, I say to a lot of my TED speakers. So if that moment happens, what I want you to do is I want you to look up and to the right. 
Now, why up and to the right? Well, this is actually a brain recall. So when we look up and to the right, we're into memory. We're recalling things. Up and to the left, we're processing. Up and to the right, we're, we're remembering. So first of all, that helps you. The pause, that helps the audience. Now, what the audience is seeing in that moment as you take and oh, and breathe, which is the other thing. So first of all, pause, breathe, look up and to the right. What will happen, you've gotten away from the energy of the audience by looking away. As you look away and you're recalling, you're in a moment of recall and you've given your body oxygen. Your brain mm -hmm. is now working again. So the information comes back. It comes down to you. Now, probably what's going on in your brain is, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? But what the audience is seeing is, oh my God, there's a moment here. There's a moment and it's going to be <laughs> profound, right? Because they're all waiting. And then you come back and you continue it on and the audience had a chance to catch up to you. That's what happened in that pause. And you owned the stage because you held it. You didn't freak out. You didn't start shaking. You held your space. You paused. You breathed. You remembered. And you continued. And that is powerful for the audience. Yes. Some people are very worried that that pause, they're like, oh, my God, they're going to know that I forgot. But if you do it, not just one pause of speech, but you do six or seven or ten Oh. You're kind of educating the audience that this is not going to be a 100-meter sprint. We're going to go easy. We're going to pause. We're going to have a great time. And you're educating your audience. And I'm not going to be like, blah, 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 the entire 30 minutes. So well, look at our conversation right now. So, you know, sometimes I'm speaking really fast. And then other times I'm slowing down. Same with you, right? And we pause. And then you answer. And so when we're having a conversation, we do this really, really naturally. We don't even think about it, right? And our voice, notice our voice. We've got lots of modulation in our voice. There's highs, there's lows. You know, we have sometimes there's some sing-songy sounds. Like there's all kinds of different sounds in our voice. And when we get up on stage, we think we lose all of that, right? It's like, so <laughs> on the one hand, we're like, oh, I want it to feel just like a conversation. And on the other hand, we get up there and we're, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right? And, yes. and when you talk fast, you have no modulation in your voice because you can't, right? Because it's just all at one speed, at one sound. And so the audience doesn't know what to listen to. The reason we pause is so that you'll listen. And pauses. Look what you just did. Look at what you just did. I paused and you leaned in. You did, you did that because what happens when we hear a pause is we assume something's coming. Yeah, so pauses demand attention. They do. They absolutely do. And so it's a secret weapon. You can you see somebody on their phone, just pause. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I always told my students that it's like, when you were in class and you weren't paying attention, you were just drawing on your notebook and the teacher was talking, 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 and then they paused, like they weren't talking, you would go, what I miss? you would just bring your <laughs> eyes up and miss? see like, yeah, is anybody looking at me? Am I going to get asked the question? What's going on? 
<laughs> the equivalent of a great pause. And what I also tell my students is if you forget, drink a little bit of water. Yes, absolutely. And I tell them just to mitigate the nervousness a little bit is not obviously don't do it all the time, but if you can, it if it'll bring you a little bit of peace in comedy, we do it a lot. We bring a cheat sheet, the size of a cell phone with five keywords and the five keywords correspond. Each word corresponds to a comedy bit. So the keyword will not say like the or with, because those no. words are in every single bit. It'll yeah. say like karate, avocado, Mexico, Montreal, and engineering. Because as soon as you see these words, they immediately trigger something in your brain that you recall the general yeah. idea of the next topic or the topic that you were talking about. So if you pause a couple of times during your speech and you drink water a couple of times, and it's a 30-minute speech, let's say you forget what you were going to say in minute 26, and then you do the same thing. I'm just going to drink some water. And you don't rush it. We, I call it the boss move. You drink water, you put it down. As I was saying, or you could say, now I want to talk to you about, when yeah. you see Michelle Obama or Barack Obama, they're not like, um, uh, it's pauses, beautiful, strong, and it commands attention. Yeah. I call it the boss move. So you educate your audience and it's beautiful. Oh. And it, you know what what I I talk to my students a lot about is is the idea of using the pause to create almost the mental brackets around something. So, you know, as you like we we talk about um, creating your idea. So we call that a statement of purpose. So what is the statement of purpose? What is the one thing that you want your audience to take away? And you you want to say that that is really, really important. But you're not going to say it as the first thing out of your mouth because they wouldn't get it. It has to be contextualized. And so we use storytelling as the way to contextualize the idea, the statement of purpose. So what happens is you're telling a really interesting story. And of course, everyone's leaning in on story. And you're really into the story. And at some point, you're going to transition into that statement of purpose. And it can be really seamless. But the problem with that is that they can miss it. And so mm. this is where pause becomes really important because you can lead up to it and then you pause. And then you deliver it. And then you pause. And with that, what happens is that people are like, oh, what was that? And if you then repeat that thing, what you've done is you've instilled that idea with a lot of importance, right? So you say, you know, you pause, you say it, you pause and you go, let me just repeat that because I really want to make sure you get this and you do it again. Now your audience 100% knows what you're talking about. And everything that you say from that point forward, they will now contextualize to that idea. And that is what you want, right? Because you're, you're putting forward an idea. Beautiful. I 100% agree. And I think pauses make you sound wise. Uh, a lot of people say grandparents are wise because experience, I just think they pause a lot and they get extra points because of that. Because <laughs> they can't remember as much, right? <laughs> Memory's gone. The pausing is longer, I think. Exactly. I always, I always tell people, like, if I tell you, hey, Andrea, if you buy this, you're going to become a millionaire, everyone. You could be like, well, maybe, maybe not. But if I say, hey, Andrea, if you buy this, you will become a millionaire. 
you're going to consider it more. You're like, oh my God, maybe this guy knows something that I don't, you know, maybe, maybe I should buy it. It's the same words, but the delivery is different. And, and that's it. Your voice. This is something that I, and especially in a world where we're living on camera, our voice is so important to create engagement with our audiences. We've lost some of that physicality, right? Because you can, you're only seeing me from, you know, sort of the shoulders up. And so my whole body is now is lost to you. So how do I engage you? I can't walk around the stage anymore. Uh, you know, I can't look directly at you. I can't even make eye contact for God's sake. Right. So what do I have? I've got my voice. And so when I use my voice as a storytelling tool and to your point like that, you know, if you buy this, you're going to, you're going to become a millionaire versus if you buy this, you're going to become a millionaire. Now, what I've done, I've intrigued you. You might lean in. You may not, you may not buy it, but you uh-huh. think I've got a story to tell you to, because to your point, all it is, is inflection. It's engagement, it's pausing, it's pacing. And when we talk to each other, we do this so naturally. And all we're doing is training people to use their voice as a storytelling tool so that other people are interested. And that's all it is. That's all it is. I wholeheartedly agree. I feel that people imagine your vo- your body language based on how you sound if they can't see the whole of you That's because right. they, they don't have your physicality so i'm like hey andrea i'm so excited to talk to you today this is a um a thank you for being on this podcast you have no idea i've waited for this for a long time everybody listening at home is like oh, you God. don't want her to be on this podcast no. <laughs> this, because- I, go ahead I was going to say, what you're talking about is texture in the voice, right? Because right now I'm smiling. And whether you're looking at me or not, you know I'm smiling, uh-huh. right? Because that's texture in the voice. Yes. I got so excited about this interview that the questions that I had written went to, went to trash. And we just navigated as two passionate people in speaking and influencing. Okay, but... Before we move into to the rapid fire, which is really quick, I read up and I spoke to Lil. I know you were born in Halifax, and this is, uh, I, I really want to ask you this. You came to Toronto in 1989 from Halifax. How and why did you decide to come to Toronto from Nova Scotia? So it, you know what? It's a long story, so I won't get into it in, in a great deal of depth. But but the you know the biggest the easiest way is bright lights, big city. You know, I was going to school and bartending in Halifax, and I woke up one day and I thought I can do this anywhere. And I uh, I came to Toronto. I had one friend in Toronto who had just moved here from Halifax. I came up for a weekend, um, and I remembered. So this was in 1989, folks. So no internet no internet. Um, and so I, uh, I opened the newspaper, if you can imagine, and looked at the unemployment section. And there was, there was a section, first of all, there was a section. And I was like, in, in Halifax, there was one page of like want ads for like people to, you know, looking for jobs, right? It was like one page of employment ads. In Toronto, there was an entire section. I was like, holy cow, they hire people up here. <laughs> At the time I was 22. And so, so that was that. And then, and then I realized that like, 
you know, if I wanted to do, if I wanted to have a career as a woman in 1989, Halifax was not a place for women. I could be a secretary or I could be a teacher. And that was true in those days. And so I came to Toronto because I wanted a career and, and I found one. And then I found a second one and then I found a third one. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll find another one. Who knows? But, you know, uh, you know, in the time that I've been in Toronto, I've been a fundraiser. I've been a marketer and now I've been a speaker's coach. And so who knows what my next career will be? But I think this one I'll probably stick for a while. I love it. I can see the passion running through you. So you ended up working over 20 years as a senior leader in marketing and advertising And I imagine still early 90s, it was a male-dominated corporate marketing world. What was it like navigating it? And and what did it take to succeed like you did because you were very successful in that area? Yeah. So for me, you know, I so I started the first five years I spent in not-for-profit. And I was just this young stars in my eyes kind of kid and did whatever. And I, and I trained, I trained as a fundraiser and I left the fundraising world, went into the, um, the advertising world and it was hugely male dominated. You know, all the bosses were men and all the workers were women. And, um, and so it was a really interesting dynamic and, you know, I was young and, and, and driven and passionate. And what I found was that I, as a woman, um, even the, not even though as a woman, I was able to bring both the emotion and the and the logic to everything I did. And advertising is a creative industry, as we can all understand. But marketing is math driven, and and so you have to have both the 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 science and the creativity. And that was the thing that as a woman, I think I was able to do a little bit more easily than a lot of my male counterparts, but. What I, what I did was that I often showed up trying to be like my male counterparts. So trying to be very logical and not be emotional and, you know, just the facts, man. And what happened for me was I would get tasked to do all the work. So I was the one doing the analytics. I was the one, um, you know, understanding what the impact was, you know, understanding all of the insights inside of it. But I wasn't the one that they were putting in front of the client. Or if I was, it was the junior client. Because I was so fact-driven, I wasn't bringing the emotions. And it was, you know, sort of midpoint in my career where I started to understand the power of story. And that was actually what unlocked it for me. And so what happened was I started to bring together the creativity of story with the um, the underpinning of facts and bringing these two things together. But the challenge that I had all through my, my career, like I, I, I became very, very successful and largely because of the fact that I had these two things. But I always found it difficult to be able to, because I didn't know I was doing it. It was all intuitive, right? This was all intuitive. And so so it wasn't actually until I started working with TEDx Toronto, where I started to be trained in the in the art of story, that I really, really understood what I had intuitively be doing. And the problem with being intuitive is that you get it sometimes, sometimes you don't. And every time you sit down to write a presentation, you're like, 
hope to God I can do it this time, right? You have no consistency. And so when I learned how to be a storyteller and how to incorporate facts, what that allowed me to do was to create the consistency. And so I am much better now than I ever was in advertising. Um, In fact, I work with some of my colleagues in advertising now, teaching them what I now know, which I I wished I had known then. But, you know, it, it, you know, it is a tough, tough world. And advertising continues to be tough as, you know, as the world shifts and changes. And I hope that, you know, some of the challenges that they have around male, female and ageism, you know, start to un- unpack and go away because it is, you know, they, they, they do favor, um, they favor a lot of things and I, and it's not helpful in a world where we are becoming much more aware of the need for diversity and inclusion and most of all, equity, you know, creating equity at a leadership level. And I think that, um, you know, advertising is one of those industries that could use that. Oh, my God, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I do feel that when you become more consistent, it's incredible because you're not relying on, oh, I have to perform really well on game day. You're performing all the time because you've done, you've got the logic side, you've got the storytelling side, and it, now it's more predictable. It's not like, oh, let's see what happens. Well, it's developing frameworks, right? Like that's one of the things that I did was I developed frameworks to be able to help me. So, you know, using a storytelling framework, using a, a, a presentation framework, and these frameworks, the thing that's really powerful about any framework, and especially a framework um, that works, is that, the framework is simply the underpinning. Like it's not, the audience should never see the framework. If we think of, you know, take the analogy of, of uh, you know, a commercial building, let's say, you know, you're watching a tower go up. I, I live in downtown Toronto, there's towers going up around me. Um, and, you know, when you see a tower going up, what happens? Well, first of all, it takes them about two years to build the foundation. Right. It, and it literally does. I'm not kidding. It takes about two years to build a foundation for one of the those massive towers because there's so much work that has to go on and none of us are seeing it. Right. It's all concrete and structural and all that, you know, there's a bunch of work. So think about that as being the like, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? Right now? Now you've got that figured out, like you've got your idea. Okay, so that's the foundation. The next thing that happens once the foundation is up, now they start to build all of the, 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 the structure, right? And it's just girders, right? It's all this framework that goes up around a building and it's ugly. And, you know, it's, it, it's necessary. We all agree it's necessary because God, the building's got to stay up. Um, but I don't want to see that when the building is finished, right? And we don't see it when the building is finished. So that's your framework. Now, what happens once you've got your framework outlined you've got that you've got your idea and you've got all the points of your idea outlined in a framework that says that the bathroom is here and the kitchen is here and the living room is there so now you've got all the right pieces in all the right places and all the girders and you know beams and all of that stuff is up now you hide it all with the with the over the you know the 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 actual exterior and we don't see any of that and that's the story that's the story so when you bring story in all of that stuff that lives inside of the framework disappears the audience has no idea you used a framework and never should but for you as the speaker what happens with a framework is because you've done the work 
and you know your idea of the, the 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 one words that's actually what lives in each of the places in the framework is those one words that's the recall and so now what you've got is a mental map you know that you're going from your commanding opening to your statement of purpose from that statement of purpose you're going to your your um, message number one then you're doing your support then you're doing your takeaway. Then you're going to message number two and your support and your takeaway and so on. And then you've got a close. So now you've got a mental map for where you're going. So mm-hmm. all you need are the one words or the couple of words that give you the recall so that when you're on stage, you're telling that story, the story holds it all. And you're like, so in that moment, when you have that pause and you look up, all you're going is, oh, I'm on message one and I'm going to message two. Right. Okay. I just got to do the key takeaway. Oh, I know what that is. And now you come back. You don't have to worry about remembering the words. You just need to know where you are on the map. And that's the beauty of a framework. And that's what makes it repeatable and consistent. I love it. I love it. And then you add the authenticity to it and you're unbreakable unmistakable, highly capable, invincible. Beautiful. Thank you, Andrea. We're going to go with the rapid fire questions here. So I'll read it and you rapid fire answer as best as you can, obviously. Complete this statement. I lose track of time when blank. When I'm crocheting. Oof, I love it. What have you done in the past three months that makes you feel proud? I've, I've helped a lot of people really clarify their ideas. Love it. If you can invite three people for dinner, living or dead, who would you invite? Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein, and would be the third, Aristotle. Love it. If you could study with any expert in the world, who would you study with? And what would you study? I don't know. I don't know. I, that would change daily for me. That's way too hard. <laughs> Perfect. That's still an answer. What book have you recommended most to others? Oh, Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Oof, I've never heard of that one. That's amazing. New book, fantastic. Anything by Walter Isaacson, first of all. He's a biographer. Have to read his stuff. Um, Codebreaker is the um, the biography of Jennifer Doudna, who was the who was the founder that she won the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, but which is significant in the creation of the COVID vaccine. So the book itself is it reads like a whodunit. Um, it's fantastic. It un, uh, sort of gives you a peek below the surface of the scientific world and then specifically gets into the creation of the vaccine for COVID. Wow. So good. So good. What opportunity has come your way that you are glad you turned down? Oh, God. I don't turn much down, you know, because I, I get involved in so many different things. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, actually. I don't know. That's a really good question. That's what I'm going to have to think on. Maybe continuing in the uh, advertising world and you just turn yeah. it down. Yeah, and you know what? Like, and maybe, you know what? Um, you know, if I think to my early life, like um, getting married too young, I, I turned down some marriage proposals. And I think... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and in plural too. Yeah. <laughs> Marriage proposals. Oh my God. It's amazing. 
what are two to three things that you've always wanted to do that are still on your bucket list? I absolutely want to go to Machu Picchu. Um, I would like to... Um, Hmm. I would like to, I, I actually I'd really like to go to Davos, the World Economic Forum at Davos. And um, and I'd like to do a TED Talk. Ooh, yes. If you had six months left to live, how would you spend them? I would spend them giving away as much as I possibly could. Uh, I would travel, and everywhere I would go, I would try and give something away. Oof. And the last question, the champagne question. If we were to meet up in 2022 with a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating in Andrea's life? We are celebrating that I have just gotten off the stage from doing my TED talk. Let's go. Do you have a potential name, uh, title? Or do you know maybe what it would be about? Yep. It's all about creating impact in the world. And it's about, um, it's, the title is Why Your Thought Leadership is Needed Now. Ooh, I want to see it. I want to watch it already. Well, this is incredible, Andrea. We've come to the end of this life-changing podcast episode because we are making a difference in people's lives and delivery message storytelling influencing thought leadership i think this was a master class thank you so much i really admire you big hug to lil for making this happen and i am i am sure i'm confident that that we will be doing some things in the future i i would love to collaborate with you Oh, Stefan, I would absolutely love that. I uh, have so enjoyed today's talk. This has been, like you said, it's been a, a meandering bit of a masterclass, but so much fun. And thank you. I've learned so much from you. So thank, thank you, you for sharing all of your thought leadership. It's so, so important. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I, I think we could be here for like the next 20 hours talking about speaking and influencing and stage and delivery and everything. But we have to go for commercial reasons, I guess, so that people don't have to listen to a 20-hour podcast episode. My friends, Andrea Sampson and Stefan Dyer on the Stefan Dyer Podcast. Ciao, ciao. Gracias por escuchar el Stefan Dyer Podcast. Arrivederci, my people.